Welcome to another episode of Friends in Wonder, a place where we invite you to explore meaningful topics without judgment or limits. Brought to you by two lifelong friends sharing their insights while wondering, how can this help? I'm Joe Luther. And I'm Vince Kern. And we've got great topics lined up for you each week. So be sure to subscribe, like, and even share with your friends. Now let's wander and wonder together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another weekly edition of Friends in Wonder. Hey, Joe, we've got a great show today. After doing the midterm elections, we're going to delve into something a little bit lighter. We're going to talk a little baseball and uh, and and listen and hear interview a guy who has affectionately been labeled the dean of the San Diego Padres press box. That's kind of exciting, and I think it's uh, fitting since we... Last week, we did an episode on the election, and that's kind of the national obligation or the national requirement for people. And we're going to move into something that's a little bit more like the national pastime, uh, America's game. So I'm excited to talk to him. Me too, Joe. Our guest today is Steve Dolan, and the reason they call him the Dean of the Padres Press Box is that he holds the longevity record for active news media covering the Padres. He's been doing it over 50 years. He was born in San Diego and living out his dream of being involved in the sports world in a big way. He started covering the Padres in 1973 with the Backcountry Trader, and he's covered the Padres for the Daily Californian in El Cajon, for the Desert Sun newspaper in Palm Springs, for the Los Angeles Times, San Diego County Edition, Associated Press, and Sports Ticker. He hosted his own sports radio talk show from 2012 to 2017 called Dolan's Dugout. And more recently, he switched from writing game stories to serving as an official statistician. He's worked with play-by-play announcers from visiting teams and talent from for Fox Sports San Diego, Bally Sports, FS1, who owns the TV rights for Major League Baseball. He's also been a statistician for TBS. And full disclosure, I've known Steve since 1989 when we worked together at the Daily Californian, but I can attest he's one of the finest and humblest human beings you'll ever meet. He's got great opinions on some of the upcoming changes and shares a lot of experience with us. So without further ado, Steve, how you doing today? Doing great, Vince. Thank you so much to you and Joe for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So, Steve, uh, you're you're one of uh, an example of somebody who sort of got into his dream career at an early age. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, with with stats? Actually, Vince, I started in 1971, which was my junior football season at El Capitan High School in Lakeside, California. I was a team statistician uh, my junior and senior years. My senior year, there was a, the local paper, the Backcountry Trader. They wanted somebody to write a story about the high school football team. So they said, hey, this guy's a statistician and this guy is taking journalism over at El Capitan, the high school. And you may ask, well, what was he doing a senior year writing for the school newspaper? Well, simple story. During my junior year of high school, one of my teachers said to me, he said, you know, Steve, I think you're a pretty good writer. I'm like, oh, okay. He says, tell you what, next year in journalism, we got a new teacher. She's young and she's beautiful. And I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. That's all it took, huh? Okay. So you started doing stats for the football team. And uh, then what happened? 
Well, I actually did stats for the football team for a couple of years. And then uh, my senior year playing high school baseball, I let a, met a man named Bill Dickens. Bill uh, was a sports editor of a local paper called The Daily Californian. Four days after high school, I was actually working at a daily newspaper, sitting there from four to midnight, taking the phone calls, high school basketball during the summer, high school baseball during the summer, you name it. Took the calls, wrote the stories, and it was history from there. Wow. That's exciting. You were 18 years old and you were already kind of living a dream. Exactly, Joe. I mean, I was just so lucky. I mean, to be that age, to be 18 when I started there, and even before that, when I was 17, to have started in the Padres press box. It just, it was a dream come true. I mean, if you told me that's what's going to happen, I would have never said, are you kidding me? Well, and I guess I want to dig a little deeper into that because a lot of kids at 18 years old are pretty afraid to do much of anything. And you got submersed right into kind of a, an intimidating uh, dream type job. It was, it was very intimidating, especially at the times where the daily Californian would send me down or the backcountry trader would send me down to cover the Padres because being that age in the press box, very intimidating. I remember one night for a game, I was in the press box having dinner, of course, sitting by myself. All of a sudden, these two writers from the Montreal Expos, they come down, they say to me, can we sit with you? And I'm like, of course. <laughs> and that was all it took to know that people cared about me. It's a story of 50 years later that I carry. If you see somebody young, if you see somebody who may look a little intimidated or out of place, go talk to them. That's what somebody did to me. And 50 years later, I'm still in it. So try to be an example for somebody. They helped you feel like you belong. And here you are 50 years later. Isn't that amazing? When you think of the ripple effects of that, that's awesome. And it obviously made quite an impact on you. It definitely did, Joe. The fact of the matter, these two guys who I had no idea. I mean, again, they were the Montreal Expos, which from San Diego was the furthest team away. They didn't know me from whoever was sitting in the third row on the press level, but they came over to me said hi, had a conversation, made me feel comfortable. And from then on, it was just like, wow, people care about me. Now it's my job to care about others. That's an awesome story. So, so Steve, you um, covered the Padres in 1984. And uh, that, of course, was the year that they went to the World Series and played against uh, Joe and, and my hometown Detroit Tigers, who had an amazing season that year. And so you actually came to Detroit and covered the Padres. What what was that? What was that like traveling with the team and and you know coming to Detroit during the World Series? That must have been an exciting time. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, to be at the World Series, having traveled with the team all that year, because as you know, in 1984, the Padres they won the Western Division by a lot. That was also the year they had the big beanball war in Atlanta. So people remember them for that. But what I remember, Vince, traveling with the team then. When the Padres left Atlanta on the final day of the regular season to go to Chicago to play the Cubs before they played the Tigers, I remember going on the team plane. We get off the airport in Chicago. You've got all these TV cameras looking right at you. You know, and I mean, I used to hang out a lot with Steve Garvey, and I was actually right next to Garvey. So, of course, you got on local TV because you were hanging out next to Garvey, the one guy they wanted <laughs> to interview. And then, of course, like you say, the Padres lost two games to the Cubs, but then they won the next three. Then they go to Detroit to play the Tigers after, you know, splitting the two games in San Diego. One thing I remember about that Tigers team, of course, your shortstop, Alan Trammell is from San Diego. He was a legend of Kearney high school in the city. 
And I mean, you know, with him and Lou Whitaker, so double play combination, that great Tigers team that, of course, started the season with 35 wins and five losses. So mm-hmm. I knew in the World Series, Padres don't have much chance. And again, after they split in San Diego, I figured they're probably going to lose three straight in Detroit, which they did. But interesting story, after game four, before game five, my old boss with the LA Times and all, we were walking the streets in downtown Detroit, as you know, where Tiger Stadium is and all. I can remember the store owner saying to us, we want the Tigers to win the World Series, but we want the Tigers to win the World Series in San Diego. Why? Because if they win here, a lot's going to happen. As you know, a lot happened. You saw the buildings go down, the cop cars, et cetera. So the owners, they got their wish when the Tigers won the World Series, but they didn't get their wish when they won it in Detroit. Yeah, for those of you who are too young to remember, the front page picture was of a young guy face down in the grass in the outfield of Tiger Stadium, passed out, and there was quite a bit of uh, pillaging and car burning and and other things that happened. I thought, Vince, you were going to talk about the picture that I remember in the newspaper of a guy on top of a police car that was burning upside down. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was some shenanigans that happened after the 84 World Series, but that was, yeah, kind of unbridled joy that got a little out of hand. Yeah. So what's that? What was it like? You mentioned flying with the team and, and all that. What was that like as a as a as a young guy traveling around the country? It was an exciting experience because, again, growing up, I was like so many guys. I wanted to be that player, but. Found out in high school, I certainly wasn't good enough to be that player who's going to make the major league. So it was really very interesting flying with a team. I mean, pretty much when you're on the plane, everybody stays to themselves. It's not like you have a bunch of conversations at all. But the manager of the Padres then, of course, when they got the World Series with Dick Williams. Dick, as I look back, was a master manipulator. He could be really nice to you and he could be really, really rude to you. But he always got his message across. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can remember one time. On the plane, we were asking him about a pitcher who had, um, in Cincinnati, he'd walked two batters in a row. Dick went out and talked to him, and then he got out of the inning. And I said, Dick, what did you say to that guy when he went to the out? He said, I told him, if you don't start throwing strikes, your butt is going to be so far in the minor leagues, you're never going to get back here. So it's <laughs> interesting because a lot of those off-the-field conversations certainly were better than after the game, the press box, you got the old, we didn't hit with runners in scoring position. You know, we did a great job fielding, blah, blah, blah. But you really got the good stuff away from the field. You were on the inside. And if you think about it, especially because I remember in the 1984 World Series, you know, just to be at the game was everybody's dream in Metro Detroit. And you're not only at the game at every game, you're behind the lines and you're not only behind the lines, you're right there seeing all of these interesting things up close and personal. Did you ever get to the point where you were like, you started taking it for granted? Never wanted to take it for granted, Joe, because again, growing up, I've been such a big baseball fan that I didn't want to lose that novelty. I mean, I can remember in 84 after the Tigers won game five to win the World Series. I can still remember running with Sparky Anderson, who's in the Tigers manager from center field to the Tigers clubhouse when he was in a golf cart because I wanted to interview him. Then when I got in the clubhouse, I was lucky enough, the LA Times, where I worked for them. My story after game five was talk to Kirk Gibson. And as you know, Kirk Gibson hit the winning home run. The story was a Padres manager, Dick Williams, went out to Goose Goshen and said, Goose, you got to walk Gibson and pitch to the next guy. And Goose said, no, I'm going to pitch to Gibson and get him out. 
Gibson got it out all right. He had the whole run, <laughs> the end of the World Series, basically. Yeah, that was yeah, that was part of the whole excitement that I think helped the city erupt. Yeah, baseball fans here have watched the video of that conversation at the mound over and over and over again. And I don't know if you know this, but Sparky and Gibson had a bet. Sparky, they had a bet. Sparky said, five bucks, he's going to walk you. And Gibson said, no, he's going to pitch to me. And the reason Gibson said he was going to pitch to him was because the first time he faced him in the major league, he struck him out on three pitches. So Gossage was bullheaded and Gibson knew what was coming. And that's a legendary home run in Detroit. Um, So you're in the press box and you're doing this job. Now it's been 50 years. So you've been around some of the some a lot of your heroes right as as a childhood person because the Padres were your hometown team and then you've also met some of the broadcasting heroes can you talk a little bit about you know some of the 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 people that you've met that inspire you or stick with you Vince as far as a player I mentioned it earlier was Steve Garvey because back in the day when we took the team bus the to and from the ballpark the first row wore four rows were the manager coaches and the media. And then from row five on was the players. Garvey always sat in row five because he would talk to media. Cause remember at that time, there was the rumors that Steve Garvey was going to get into politics. So obviously he got to know the media and all that never worked out as far as politics. But I remember Garvey and certainly Tony Gwynn from San Diego, because I covered him at San Diego state, not as a baseball player, but as a basketball player, as a matter of fact, Tony Gwynn, the basketball player, still holds the all-time assist record at San Diego State, which is a pretty darn good team now. They're ranked in the top 20 in the nation. Yeah. And as far as broadcasters, Vince, I've really been blessed to have worked with four of them. Of course, I've worked as visiting with Vin Scully with the Dodgers, Harry Callis with the Philadelphia Phillies, Dave Niehaus with the Seattle Mariners, and of course, locally, Dick Enberg. Mm-hmm. I think the one that I remember the most, of course, would be Vin Scully, because, you know, he passed away within the last year and all. From what I've heard, Vin Scully out here is basically like the Ernie Harwell of there in Detroit. Vin was great to work with. The thing about Vin, such a pleasant man. You talk about being intimidated. The first time I worked with him, I was told I was going to work with Vin Scully. I was like, I'm working with Vin Scully? And, you know, I mean, I was just so intimidated, but he was just so nice. I mean, after every time I would work a series with the Dodgers and the Padres in San Diego with Vin Scully, after the series, Vin would come up to me and say, Steve, it was a pleasure working with you. And I would think, are you kidding with me? You're Vince Scully. It's my pleasure. Isn't that supposed to be my line? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He stole it from me, Joe. These guys are all, the guys you mentioned are all in the Hall of Fame for broadcasters now, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 funny you say that, Steve, because in my path, I, I actually did have the opportunity to meet Ernie Harwell a couple of times as a member of the media. And I've met a lot of different celebrities in my career, but I got to tell you, the one that made my knees shake the most with admiration was was Ernie Harwell. There was just something about him that was pure goodness. And from what I hear, Vin Scully was the same way. Oh, absolutely, Vince. Because the thing I remember about Vin Scully, as a kid, I've always loved keeping a scorebook. As a kid, before the San Diego Padres were a major league team, I used to go to bed every night listening to the Dodgers out of L.A., listening to Vin Scully, keeping a scorebook as a kid. And then, you know, some, what, 30 years later, 
I'm sitting next to Vince Scully, keeping a scorebook for him. I mean, oh my gosh, talk about what are the odds of that? Not quite winning the lottery, but close. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Hey, you know, I wanted to ask about that. That was one of the thoughts that I had um, kind of thinking about this interview. And that is when I was a kid growing up, I used to, you know, in fact, that was a very common souvenir to buy when my dad would take me to a baseball game is the official scorebook. And then to keep score live while the game is going on. And uh, I'd look around and there'd be a lot of kids just like me keeping score. And I'm wondering, is that still a thing? Do, Do kids still do that? I'm not sure, Joe. I don't think so. Not so much. This was really sad. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine who used to work for local CBS News out here in San Diego, he moved to Texas and he's writing a book and he said, Steve, can you get me a program at the San Diego Padres and send it to me? I'd like to have for my book. I went to customer service at the Padre game and they're like, we don't have a program anymore. We don't have something. <laughs> so it's really sad. Sometimes it was in the back of the, of the, of the regular program. Yeah. And yeah, they don't even do that. Yeah. No, I mean, anymore. I mean, you know, remember you'd have this program and have all sorts of stories about the players and all that. You'd have the, in the middle of the team rosters with a scorebook and all that. And you don't get that anymore. That's disappointing to me. Yeah. Which is, which is ironic because, um, both baseball, of course, um, we were going to ask about the uh, how the statistics of uh, baseball changed after Billy Bean and the money ball. But sports in general has become so addicted to data and statistics. Um, and um, and now, though, it really isn't as big a part of of the fan experience like it used to be. I, th- I wonder what that is. Do you think it's maybe the digital age? Um, there's, cause it's, it's so available on your phone and your, your personal, um, uh, you know, you, you can pretty much look up anything, um, on the phone. Cause before I, I remember, you know, before we had the internet, I would be at a baseball game and I couldn't, I literally couldn't remember if my favorite player, you know, was one for two or, or, you know, one for three or, or oh for three. Um, so part of the fun was keeping track of it. So you knew what was going on on a live basis. I guess maybe now it's easy to keep track of that data with a phone. It, it is. I mean, the digital age shows made it so much different, but I think what we've really lost over the years is what's called the eye test. What you see, I think of, now, Bruce Bochy, who used to manage here in San Diego, remember, he won three World Series in five years for the Giants. He won in 2010, 12, and 14. Bochy managed by his gut. And that's going to be interesting now that he's coming back to the Texas Rangers next year, if he's still going to be able to do that or if it's all going to be analytics-driven. Because I know back in the day, if you were the manager of the Detroit Tigers, you made the lineup out, but now, you know, the general manager, the analytics people and all that, they'll say like, Joe can't pitch the third time around. He can pitch the 18 batters, but the third time around the 19th party, he can't do it. Look what happened in the world series with Blake Snell a couple of years ago. He's with the Padres. Now here he is in the sixth inning against Tampa Bay. He's pitching a one hit shutout, winning one to nothing. And they won't let him pitch the third time around. And what happens? The bullpen collapses. Tampa Bay loses. The Dodgers win the world series. Well, the sad thing is Snell has a one-hitter going. He's thrown like 73 pitches. Let him pitch. But this analytic stuff, I think sometimes you can overanalyze. To me, if a guy's doing well and he's thrown, look at Zach Wheeler last year in game six of the World Series this year. He's thrown 70 pitches. 
He's winning one to nothing, but lefty coming up against lefty. So his manager brings in a lefty, and what happens? Sure enough, the lefty hits a homer off the lefty. Zach Wheeler leaves one nothing lead, 70 pitches. His reliever gives it up. Game series over. You can overanalyze. And he's got to and he's got to he's got to speak to the media and take the uh the team, the team angle, even though he's probably eaten up inside because he oh. could he could have he knew he could have got it but hey you know so that's it that brings me to an interesting um part of what we wanted to talk about which is when you started doing um stats for the padres way back um uh, you know it was all done by hand right what do you keep track of as a statistician and how do those other things get accomplished let me start real quick first with that for instance like when you're watching um valley's Sports in Detroit when okay when McGill Cabrera hits her home run why the way you see on that bottom line you know 383 feet 103.7 miles per hour that's all kept by somebody in the production truck they mm-hmm. do all that and just so you know the people in the production truck for truck for a TV game they get there about six hours early so that that stuff you're seeing during the fifth inning about you know this is the they're the fourth best hitting team in the American League whatever that's mm-hmm. all done well in advance they're not doing that on the fly but as far as personally for stats big thing now is pitch counts because again guys are coming out after 80 90 pitches I know for instance um, in San Diego Don Orsillo and Don's very well known of course he did the Boston Red Sox for 15 years he does a lot on Fox and TBS. For instance, Don's really in the pitch count. After every inning, make sure you get the pitch count. Anytime an inning is under 10 pitches, you need to give it to the announcer right away. So on the air, they'll say, that was a nine-pitch inning by Vince Kern, or that was an eight-pitch inning by Joe Luther. And then also with them, they'll want to know either like the 20th or 25th pitch coming. That's a lot of what you do early in the game. As the game goes on, they're looking for you know defensive changes right away. Who's up in the bullpen? You'll see like on Valley Sports back there, they'll show who's on deck. They'll always say, you know, who's on deck? Make sure it's a guy. Make sure it's not a pinch hitter. There's things like runners in scoring position. Trends during the game, like you know, three of the last four batters, runners on base have struck out, things like that. Big ones, runners in scoring position, meaning like what does a team do when they've got runners on second and third? Um, and then one thing I learned this year, too, sometimes it's not just that. There was one game this year where the San Diego was 0 for 4 with runners in scoring position, but they were 0 for 12 with anybody on base because guys kept leading off the inning with a hit and then they go strikeout, strikeout, strikeout. <laughs> So that's not a runner in scoring position, but it's three times you got a runner on base, you're not getting a hit. So those are the type of things you're looking for. Those are a lot more. I'd actually not be doing a game to go through everything you do, but that's kind of a general outline. So it's talking points for the announcers and the and the color commentators um, on the fly during the game. Yeah. And that makes it so much more interesting because truthfully, I'm always interested in the pitch count. You hear you hear uh, a pitcher's in the fifth inning. The first thought I have is, okay, is he in the fifth inning a about to come out or is he in the fifth inning cruising along you know it, exactly and that's why you'll see put on the screen you know pitch counts by inning he went 22 12 10 8 you know things like that i mean another thing you gotta do too as a statistician is listen to the announcers what they're talking about if all of a sudden they're talking about how hey it looks like you know looks like the tigers are really doing well Whenever they get runners on base, and by the way, you want to hand them the note. You know, uh-huh. Tigers are five for seven runners in scoring position. So a lot of being a statistician is playing off what you hear the announcers say. That's what they want from you, too, is that, again, you know, if they're saying something, have something to back it up. So is it safe to say that you're the guy in the when sometimes you hear it on the broadcast, you hear the voice coming over the loudspeaker. So like, you know, are you, do you broadcast it over the loudspeaker? What's your 
trying to communicate or are you in their ear with a microphone? How does that work? No, I'm actually um, sitting next to the main announcer of San Diego. That's Don Orsillo. What you're hearing over the um, on TV, the voiceover that you're hearing, that's actually what's called the official score. He or she are the ones that are telling you like it was a double air nine runner to third or, you know, they give you pitch counts. They're the ones who actually are calling the hits and the errors and that type of thing. Whereas my job is sitting next to the announcer and giving them notes what's going on during the game, you know, letting them know, again, backing up what they're saying or giving them the things we've been talking about because that's okay. what they're interested in. So you're right, and you're right next to them. You're in proximity, and and you're working directly with them, whether it's verbal or write some. You might write them a note or something like that. Um, you know, I think it's really fascinating about um, the analytics and the way the game has been changing. And next year, uh, there's a lot of new rules, right? I mean, they've really done some some big changes and I've got a list of them here and I, and I kind of want to talk about them and get your opinion because you've watched the game from the press box for over 50 years now, and you've seen a lot of things. Um, so next year, uh, let's just start with the pitch timer next year. There's going to be a pitch timer and it says that pitchers will have up to 15 seconds between pitches when the bases are empty and 20 seconds between pitches with at least one runner on base. Now, according to, you know, what I've researched here, they've tested this in the minor league, but what are your thoughts on the pitch count timing? Vince, I think it's going to cause a lot of chaos, especially at the beginning of the season, because I would say fewer, much fewer than 50% of pitchers deliver a ball within 15 seconds. I know, for instance, this year when the, um, Padres are playing St. Louis, uh, Giovanni Gallegos, their relief pitcher. He was taking about 35 seconds between pitches, and he's not an anomaly. I know Joaquin Benoit, who used to pitch for the Tigers, used to pitch for the Padres, 30 seconds easy. Yeah. And I think it's going to be especially the bullpen guys, because when they come in, they're going to work one inning, and they're thinking about every pitch. It's going to be really controversial, too, because, again, after if I don't throw the pitch within 15 seconds, it's a ball. And that's, it's going to be chaotic because, again, after the guy's not going to throw within 15 seconds, it's going to be a ball. Somebody's going to argue. It's going to shorten the game, but I'm just not sure how much. Because, again, in the beginning, it's going to be hard to adapt to that pitch clock, especially for relief pitch. So that speaks to the transition. There's, you know, growing pains with uh, all new rules. And this is obviously going to be a big one because pitchers, like you say, it's a heady, heady position. I think, you know, next to golf, um, that's probably got to be the, you know, the, the position that, well, and the hitter there's baseball in general has a lot of thinking going on in between each pitch. Um, and the idea obviously is a good one to speed it up for the, for the viewer. Um, but it will be interesting to see during the transition, how it goes, but what do you think in the long run, do you think speeding it up is going to make the, um, the, the viewer experience better? If indeed it works, Joe, I think it will, because one of the tough things about baseball now, it seems like virtually every game is going well over three hours. I mean, a Major League Baseball game, which is played every day, takes longer than a National Football League game, which is played once a week. And that, I think, is an issue. Is viewership down? I'm just asking this um, in general. Do you know if viewership is down in general? I know it has been for the World Series. This year's World Series, I believe, is the second lowest ever. The only one lower was during the pandemic year in 2020 between the, 
you know, the Dodgers year that they beat Tampa Bay. So viewership is definitely down. And probably the MLB knows that one of the common uh, criticisms is that it just is, it's a long and slow kind of a game. I, I personally have that same criticism for the NFL. I think it's very slow in between each play too. It definitely is. I mean, in baseball, that's of course why uh, during the pandemic year, again, in 2020, remember starting extra innings with a runner on second base. Well, I know the traditionalists, they all say, you know, that's not baseball and I get it. But as a guy who's there every day, one thing I will say, when they start that 10th inning with a runner on second base, I'd say more than half the games are done within one to two innings. I mean, I know San Diego and L.A. played a 16-inning game in 2021, and it was the longest game of the year. And before that, when you wouldn't have the runner on second to start the inning, 18-inning games were common. Yeah. Well, let's keep moving through some of these um, new changes because there's a lot of big ones here. Um, one that I'm totally in favor is it says that the hitter will only be able to receive one timeout per plate appearance. Um, so, you know, we won't have a lot of the in and out of the box and they have to be in there within eight seconds of the of the clock. So that's they're They're also putting a little bit of it back on the hitter. Um, another thing, the thing that I found, one of the things I found really fascinating is they're getting rid of the shift. So um, the game will be back to a more traditional defensive posturing and where I think it all of the two infielders must be positioned on each side of second base when the pitch is released. You can't have them all on one side. And all four of them must have both feet within the outer boundary of the infield. So they can't go out on the outfield grass anymore um, while the pitcher is on the rubber. So wh- what do you think about that? That's a huge change, isn't it? It definitely is, Vince. I'll tell you the people that's going to help the most are left-handed hitters because think about it. When left-handers are up, you always have that third infielder on the right-hand side. I can remember, for instance, a couple of years ago when the Padres were playing in Texas, Manny Machado, the third baseman, caught a fly ball 10 feet in front of the home run wall, the third baseman. Wow. So it's, uh, I think it's really going to help the left-handed batters. I'll give you a good example. And again, I'd be in San Diego here. Juan Soto, the big name the Padres got from Washington this year. I'm on headset with a couple of guys every game. And every time Soto came up, our big joke was just put four to three in the scorebook. He was going to ground out four <laughs> being second base. He was going to ground out to that second baseman that was halfway out in right field. But now with two guys on the right-hand side, those are going to be base hits instead of ground balls to second base. That's going to be a big change if I could. One thing about it, though, that disappointed me, these guys never learned how to beat the shift. It's kind of like if you're playing football. If if you're a running team and the other team has nine men on the line, well, then lo- learn how to throw it over them. So you beat that. In baseball, I'll give you a good example. I saw Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers, a left-handed hitter, had a terrible year, but he had a game against the Padres where the Padres had that shift. Three guys on the right side, the third baseman at shortstop. He did a check swing, hit a slow ground ball to third base, and got a double. Now that's the way to beat the shift. <laughs> yeah, hit it exactly. where they're not. That's what we were taught as kids. Hit it where they're not. I mean, That's I what know we're I'm, taught as kids, right? Yeah, I'm not a professional baseball expert, but my personal feeling as a professional baseball fan is what you just said. What you know, if you're going to shift everybody over for crying out loud, hit it to the field where nobody is. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the question I have for you though, Steve, is you said it's going to help left-handed hitters. Are left-handed hitters because I I assume the shift is more for pole hitters. Um, you know, p- people who don't know how to hit opposite field. So um, 
Is that more common with left-handed hitters? Are they more of the pull hitter? I think left-handers are more the pull hitters, Joe, but that's a good question because right-handers are too because a lot of times this year, if you're not the ball game and you're watching on TV, you'll see a, a right-hander hit a ground ball up the middle and you're like, that's a base hit to center field. No, it's a ground ball to the second base who's just to the left yeah. of second base. But I'm one, I mean, uh, most people say ban the shift because of this, but Joe, you know what? I mean, we were all, when we were kids, I was on a high school team. We were taught, like, if you're batting and I'm running for first base, second baseman's covering second. So we were taught how you hit a slow ground ball with a second baseman. But these guys nowadays, they don't practice fundamentals. Yeah. I, I'll, get, I'll give you an example. I remember I was watching the Milwaukee Brewers one day. They were in San Diego. And they had one guy batting, 10 batting practice pitches. He had eight long fly balls and two home runs. And I'm like, no wonder in the game he's not going to hit a line drive single because he's not practicing it. Well, right. you know what? It's the old thing. You practice what you preach. And if you preach hitting line drives and batting practice, that's what you're going to do in the game. But nobody does that anymore. Where's Rod Carew when you need him? That guy oh, could put goodness. a ball wherever Tony he wanted to. Yeah, yeah Tony, Tony Gwynn. Because that was the thing, Joe. That's a good point. When he was here, Tony was a left hand. We always joked he hit the ball into the 5.5 hole. Five being third base, six being shortstop. Tony mastered the ground ball between short and third. And that's what these guys can't do nowadays. Cause again, they can't bunt, you know, they don't practice bunting. I believe I heard it was the Atlanta Braves didn't have a sacrifice bunt all year. And, you know, again, if you don't practice the hit and run, you're not going to be able to hit a ground ball where the guy isn't, and, you know, and nowadays uh, Jeremy Pena, the world series MVP. Remember one of the playoff games ended where a fly ball went into his glove and popped out. He almost dropped it, but we were all taught to catch with two hands. If that second hand is on top of the glove, it pushes that ball back. They're just, I hate to yeah. say it, but they're just no fundamentals. Fundamentals. But I guess, I guess what MLB's thinking is, you know, pe people want to see scoring. People want to see excitement. They don't want to see a shift where, you know, um, everybody's getting out and uh, yes. you, they want more runs. So yeah, I, guys, guys are hitting the ball, you know, really hard to the right side of the infield. I mean, they're at exit velocity, 110 miles an hour. And there's some guy standing out in the outfield, picking it up and throwing it to first. Yeah. Um, here's one that, that I actually kind of laugh about a little bit. Um, the bigger bases, we're going to have <laughs> bigger bases next year. And uh, okay. So, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a rationale for everything. Um, they're going to go from 15 inch square to 18 inch square. And um, what they say is that that will reduce the distance between first and second uh, and second and third by four and a half inches. And that's going to, that's going to mean more attempted steals. Now, um, obviously that's a run advantage to the runner because, you know, he's got less distance or, or she, but modern terminology has got more distance, less distance to cover. And so um, they'll get there quicker, but really, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I don't buy it. You know, three inches bigger. I mean, there are bang, bang plays where guys may be out by fewer than three inches, but on the other hand, um, what's going to increase stolen bases and that maybe we'll get to it later, but the pitcher can only have so many pickoff throws that will increase stolen bases. Really? But as far as the bases being three inches bigger, the bit about it's going to be for safety reasons and all that. 
I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's been that way forever. And I don't think that many guys got hurt on the bases, you know, tripping on the base because it was only 15 inches instead of 18 inches. If that's happened, I don't know if any of us have seen that. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it too often. Um, I've seen, um, you know, occasionally. So the idea is the first baseman's foot is covering um, not enough of the, uh, it's covering too much of the plate that there isn't anywhere for the runner to, to get to first. Is that the idea? That's part of the idea. But again, how often do you really see that? The yeah. only time you really see it at first base is when ground ball, the first base and the first baseman tosses it to the pitcher and the pitcher and the runner collide. You see that but as far as the actual, what they're talking about. I'm not so sure. So those are, but those are a lot of big changes all at once. And one of the things that um, has also come up, and I don't think it's being implemented yet, but the electronic strike zone. Um, where it's just a digital box and the umpire isn't calling balls and strike. Talk, can you tell us a little bit about that? Or do you have knowledge of that being tested or or implemented or what's going on? It's been implemented in some of the lower minor leagues. I'll tell you what, um, Joe and Vince, to be honest with you, I like the robo up. I think umpires nowadays are just really bad on balls and strikes. I've seen pitchers throw four pitches in the exact same spot and it's ball two, strike two. Well, if it's in the same spot, either it's ball four or strike four, if there was such a thing. Uh, I know we had the Padres had a game in Miami in 2021 where the home plate umpire, Doug Eddings, was so bad. They said he missed 17 calls. I mean, he was calling ball strikes and strikes balls and he kicked three guys out of the game. And I was at the point where I'm like, the person that really needs to be kicked out of this game is Doug Eddings because he doesn't throw <laughs> a ball for a strike. <laughs> you know, yeah. wouldn't that be great? So, what if you had? Well, what if you had sort of a hybrid model where you had the 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 digital box, the digital strike zone box, and you had the umpire, and if the umpire made uh, you know X amount of mistakes, hey, you just got the ejection. <laughs> I'd be all for it. I'd be all for it. You, you say know? the rest of the game's going to be called by the by the digital box completely. Yeah, I think uh, you know tennis has implemented using the um, you know the replay, uh, the electronic replay, very easily, um, and it works beautifully and it works fast. I think technology really is at the point now where we could do um, the robo umpire, as you say, and it would probably move things along a little quicker, and it, there'd certainly be a lot less arguing from the umpires. Uh, I mean, not from the umpires, from the managers. Um, yeah. Because who would you yell at? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? Yell at the computer? I mean, you know, it, it's funny, Joe. Well, we do that all the time now, anyway. So why not? Yeah, there's actually something. This is interesting. I know in the Arizona Fall League, there's even, they're even taking it one step further. They've got um, where they're calling the balls and strikes, and you know, it's still umpires. But they've also got that box, you know, the robo box, so to speak. Yeah. You'll see on you'll see on TV the square. You get three challenges. Like for instance, if if um, Joe, if you're batting and you they call a strike on you, but you think the pitch is low, you can actually challenge it, and they can tell right away whether you're right or wrong. The problem is after three challenges, you're out of it, and then now a guy can call a pitch in the dirt a strike on you. But uh-huh. I find that maybe that's taken a little bit too far. But I mean, I'm all for the robo nerves because, like I say, umpires nowadays are just so inconsistent. And, you know, I mean, I remember, like when I was in high school, we had one umpire, he's the best umpire I ever had. Every pitch three inches below was a strike, but every pitch three inches below was a strike, the knees, and you knew it. It wasn't like, 
if the guy threw it there three times, it'd be ball one and strike two. That's all you can ask, and you don't get consistency. that consistency. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. But you, and you do other sports though too. You do like San Diego State uh, sports for CBS or Fox. Um, a quick question: Because are other sports using? To analytics and sabermetrics as much as baseball or 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 is it mostly baseball some of them aren't don't lend themselves to it i think you know as far as from a tv standpoint i think baseball mostly but again i mean when you're talking like college football or college basketball you know like in college football they can do the analytics too like you know vince your team on third and two that 89% of the time you're going to pass and 78% of the time you're going to be running left on that. So, you know, there's a lot of analytics there too, but Mm -hmm. I don't think it's emphasized as much as in baseball. I think baseball is probably the one that for lack of better words, it will almost analyze you to death, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I could talk baseball all day and it's really been a pleasure to have you on the show, Steve. I guess I want to wind down the interview by asking you, what would you say to somebody who's who's young and starting out in the business of whether it's, you know, sports journalism or or what you're doing? What what advice would you give them after 50 years of uh, of all the things you've done? Never lose your passion for it, because I see a lot of guys in the press box. They're just there every day. Like, uh, yeah, never lose your passion. And another thing, network, because Vince, I know, for instance, like. With the TV, I got into it, not through a resume or anything, but a guy who was doing the Padres was a friend of mine, and he needed a backup one year, and I did a few games for him, and it worked out. So by networking and getting to know these people, you may, you know, maybe you're going to be doing a job that, I'm not going to say the jobs, but there's, maybe they'd be considered the, quote, lesser jobs. You know, you might be doing things, you're not going to be sitting next to the announcers, or you're not going to be the cameraman or camerawoman, or you're not going to be the stage manager giving them stuff to the announcers. And, you know, don't be afraid to start at the bottom and work your way up because once you're in and if people like you, you're going to advance. That's really good advice because I think too often people have dreams to do something like what you're doing. You know, young kids have dreamed to do something like what you're doing, but they don't think that they're able to achieve it. Um, and in your case, it was just the passion of wanting to to do any part of it. And then uh, once you got involved, uh, you took it from there. Definitely, Joe, because I used to always say to people, for instance, when the Chargers used to be in San Diego, I'd always say, hey, if you want to get in the business, that's great. But you're not going to be covering the Chargers on Sunday afternoon. You're going to be covering the El Capitan Santana high school football game on Friday night. I mean, for instance, out here, we have a show called the PPR, which is the Prep Pigskin Report. It's on every Friday night showing all the high school football games out here in the San Diego area. We're not the best in the country for high school football, but it's probably the best high school football store in the country. A lot of people who started by, you know, just being out there running film for them or whatever. They're the big time people now. Again, it's it's the old cliche: get your foot in the door. If you're good, you'll work your way up, and you'll be there one day. That's yep. awesome. Don't be afraid to work the four to midnight because that's how you get ahead, right? Exactly. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for being with us on our show. It's it's been great. Uh, I don't anticipate a San Diego Detroit World Series next year, but. In the event that there is one, uh, I promise you that Joe and I will come out to San Diego and maybe you can get us in the press box. 
<laughs> I'll give that a try. At the very least, I can show you the gas lamp district, which you'll always see from San Diego when there's a game here. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, Steve. Joe, do you have anything to add? No, it's awesome. I tell you what, Steve, you, you, you I can feel your childhood enthusiasm still coming through. And uh, that's awesome. All these years, 50 years later, you've been um, recognized in your town and recognized by your peers. And um, and having spoken to you today, I can see why, because you have a, a great sense of enthusiasm and a great dedication to the game. And it was really fun talking to you. Well, thank you, Joe. And thank you, Vince. And as I would always want to say to Vince Scully, the pleasure truly has been mine. (laughs) Well, what a guy. So thank you everyone for listening to another episode of friends in wonder. We hope you enjoyed it. We've got the holidays barking at our door, but Joe and I have some great episodes coming up. So join us again next week. And uh, if you want to leave any kind of feedback or check us out at friendsinwonder.com or shoot us an email at talk at friendsinwonder.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for being with us. And it's a great day for a ball game. Until next time. I'm Joe. And I'm Vince. And we're Friends in Wonder.